It's Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. In the long history of KOPN, this week deserves a chapter all its own, as it is the first time in almost 50 years that we have been broadcasting from our own home. After five decades of broadcasting from the first floor of 915 East Broadway, this week, the first live show from 401 Bernadette Drive took place last Sunday night slash Monday morning. There is a huge amount of collective nostalgia for our home at 915 East Broadway and our social media posts are a mixture of sad, tearful emojis as well as likes and loves about the news of our move. Tens of thousands of people have broadcast their message to the mid-Missouri community from our old home. Thousands of people have learned how to make radio in our studios, some of whom have gone on to serious careers with NPR, Pacifica and other stations. Relationships have been started there. Babies have literally been breastfed from the air room while their mothers were DJing. So yes... Our move is an incredible mixture of millions of happy memories and also an excitement that we can now really be accessible to all in our community. The moving of all our stuff, of which we have accumulated a lot over five decades in the same place, also began in earnest this week. And two people are deserving of special mention here, my fellow programmers Margot McMillan and Joy Rushing. Starting last autumn, they began with a team of volunteers to catalogue and sort the huge vinyl and CD collection. They invited music programmers who specialised in a particular genre to come in and help decide what stays and what goes. It was and remains our gargantuan task. After 50 years of people adding things to the shelves, whether we wanted them or not, duplicate copies, scratched vinyls getting returned to the shelves, trying to sort, organise, box and decide upon every item's future has been a labour of profound love by Margot, Joy and their teams. There was a huge influx of volunteers who worked on this project. Besides the evaluators who looked through specific music genres, we had help from people that spent hours working in the KOPN library or just dropped in for a few minutes if that's what they could spare. Some volunteers worked after their radio programs, so we had people working almost 24-7 on those projects. When Joy and Margot made a list of people who had helped, they came up with 50 names in no time at all and then added more. I love the story that Margot tells about how someone was looking through the contemporary folk collection, commented that there was nothing he was interested in, and then gave a big smile and said, Oh, you kept all the good stuff. And that's the point. We are taking all the good stuff with us, along with our happy memories and our spirit of being the little radio station that could and continues to persist and flourish. Our capital campaign to fund the move now stands at almost $480,000. And the sooner we can reach our goal of $650,000, the sooner we can dedicate more funds to programming and training. So if you've been thinking about giving but haven't got around to it yet, 
please go to the support page at kopn.org. Every little helps. And so on with this week's show, which we're going to start today in ancient Egypt. In December 1871, the Italian composer Giuseppe Verdi's opera Aida premiered at the oldest opera house on the African continent, Cairo's Royal Opera House in Egypt. It was met with huge critical acclaim and went on to be performed across Europe and the Americas and remains one of the most popular operas on the international stage. But in the late 1990s, two Disney executives, Thomas Schumacher and Peter Schneider, decided to do something a little outside the company's usual realm. A few years earlier, the great opera singer Leontine Price, herself a famous Aida, had written a children's book about the story of Aida. Schumacher and Schneider purchased the rights for her book and then approached Elton John and Tim Rice and asked them to write a contemporary musical theatre version of Verdi's classic opera. The fact that the story had already been told by Verdi was, as Elton John said in a New York Times interview, like playing with fire, but that the challenge appealed to his sense of masochism. Their production opened in Atlanta in 1998, initially called Elaborate Lives, The Legend of Aida. But by the time it arrived in New York and opened on Broadway some 18 months later, it had been reworked twice, the original creative team had been replaced, and it had changed its title to be eponymously called Elton John and Tim Rice's Aida. And it is this version which opens tonight at the University of Missouri's Rheinsberger Theatre as part of its live. Harry D. Clark Summer Repertory Theatre, directed by Scott Koontz and starring Simone Sparks as Aida. And I am delighted to welcome back to the show the Larry D. Clark Artistic Director, Dr. Joy Powell. Hello, Joy. Talking to you about theatre is always as delightful as your name suggests. Oh, <laughs> Diana, every time you do an intro, I think I'm prepared. And then you say something incredibly kind and generous and I just get all melty so thank you <laughs> thank you for your kind intro and um, yes we could not be more excited to do this show at this time with this particular cast and production team and crew I mean it's a dream come true well, as always, I want to start by thanking you for giving me such a fascinating rabbit hole to dive into. <laughs> for the story of this musical has more twists and turns than Verdi's original, a mechanical pyramid that failed during the first preview on stage in Atlanta, the firing of the creative team and a whole new team brought on board to rewrite the book, the plummeting of a stage cage in the Chicago premiere with the two leading stars taken to hospital with, fortunately, only minor injuries. Elton John throwing a fit and storming out of the Chicago premiere, getting on a plane and going home to Atlanta, and then another reworking. So what drama can we expect from this year's production? Well, as you know, we like to keep all of our drama on the actual stage. <laughs> um, this, as I said, this creative team is just worked tirelessly What's interesting about summer for us is it's quite a condensed rehearsal process. And so we literally began rehearsals May 23rd and obviously we'll open a month later. So this size of show, doing it in that short amount of time, is nothing short of theater magic. What's fascinating is that this team, this cast, 
his crew, everyone is so dedicated to making it excellent. And so when you have that kind of talent, but also that kind of work ethic, really the sky is the limit. And then, of course, we have Simone Sparks, who is just, she has more magic in her fingertips than most humans have in their (laughs) entire body. So, you know, Simone and what she brings. We couldn't do the show without anybody, you know, without everyone that's involved. You know, we need everyone. But we definitely couldn't do it without someone that could bring what this role needs. And um, there is no doubt if you've ever been around Simone when she's on stage, especially, you know that she is the person for this moment, for this part. She is. Well, we'll we'll get to Simone a little bit later on. But let's go back to the story. The Elton John and Tim Rice Aida production largely follows the story of the original Verdi opera. But for those who don't know the story, give us an overview of the musical theatre story and some of the main characters we meet. Sure. So top of the show, we are introduced to Radames, who is a soldier. He is a captain. He is very, very successful in battle and in war. And he and his soldiers land from Egypt. They land on the coast of Nubia and capture several women, one of whom is Aida. And so at the very beginning, we have this exchange between Aida and Radames, and we see that there's a connection there and that this woman is not, quote unquote, just any enslaved person. There's something special about her. And as the story unfolds, we find out that Aida is actually the Nubian princess. So she's the daughter of the Nubian king. And she's working to keep her identity a secret once she is taken back to Egypt because she knows that she will put herself and her people that are already there and that have been captured with her in danger. But what one of the plot twists is that she and Radames actually fall in love, even though he is engaged to the Pharaoh's daughter, Amneris. Aida becomes Amneris's confidant and enslaved woman, her servant. But Amneris and Aida become actually good friends. And what we find out is that Radames's father, Zozer, who is the villain of the piece, has been poisoning the pharaoh slowly over time so that Zozer himself can take over. Radames did not know this plot. Once he discovers it, he tries to do right. He tries to bring justice to the situation. And from there, you'll just have to come and see the show to see how it ends. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> perfect, perfect. Fulton John described the original Atlanta version of his musical as very theatrical and very camp. He said it was a more along the lines of Dreamgirls or the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But in the two reworkings for both the Chicago and the New York production, some of the early comedy moments, I believe, were taken out and more of Verdi's original solemnity was added back in. I'm curious which of the productions you might have seen and how the Mizzou production balances campy, lightness and solemnity. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, Well, my first introduction to this show was actually in 2006, I was cast in the ensemble at the Muni in St. Louis, and that's when I learned about the show. And what was really cool is that several of the Broadway folks who had been in those roles were also cast in that production. So Nina Simone's daughter, Simone, played Aida. Will Chase was Radames. Lisa Brescia was Amneris. It was incredible. And so that was my first introduction. It was one of the first times that I was in the minority in a situation 
which was very, very important for me. And I learned a lot just personally, right? And professionally, it was a huge experience for me. So that was actually my first experience with the show. I'd never seen it before that. I didn't really know it that well before that. But to answer the second part of your question, there are definitely funny moments. And I think Scott, as the director, has worked really hard to bring those out. And um, because it does get serious and, and it is sad at the end, you know, just spoiler alert, it, it, <laughs> there are some sad moments. And so definitely, I would say in the first two thirds of the first act, for sure, there's some funny moments. There's a there's a song that M. Nair has called Strongest Suit, where she talks about fashion and makeup and how, you know, that's who she is. We learn as the story goes on, she's got much more depth than that. But that's what she's sort of known for, right? As the daughter of the Pharaoh, what is she going to wear? What is, you know, what makeup is she going to have on? What what jewelry? You know, those things. And, and so that definitely brings some, I would say, fun, some funniness, some of that levity. And there's, there's some great scenes between Aida and Rada Mays where the actors have really brought the comedy out and the, the funnier, lighter moments so that it does actually really balance the more serious, the more dramatic moments. And so I think that's wildly important when you're telling a story that has so much sadness in it to really, as a director, balance those moments. And Scott and the team have done an, an incredible job with that. I mean, Elton John is not a name that historically, at least, we link with the world of musical theatre. So for you, (laughs) as an actor and and director who has spent many years steeped in the world of musical theatre, talk to me about what you feel someone with a pop career brings to the musical theatre stage that maybe a more traditional musical theatre composer doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Well, I am a firm believer that, like, Musical theater is for everyone because there's every kind of show and every kind of style of music out there, especially now. I find this score to be completely captivating. It is challenging to sing. I think there's maybe a misnomer in people's minds. Well, it's a pop score, so it's easy and it's just got, you know, the commercial success of the hook and, you know, those kinds of things and writing pop songs. I find this to be very compelling. And I mean, one of the main love duets is called Elaborate Lives. And I was listening to it in tech dress rehearsal last night. And I thought, this is one of my favorite love songs of all time, especially in the lyrics, but also in the way that the song is crafted musically. There is such a complication to it. And isn't love complicated? I mean, it's challenging. It asks us to bring the best of ourselves and to make allowance for someone else, right? And that what they need and what they want. And that song just really captures that moment and that 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 action of love in, in such a unique way. And of course, it's it's within the story, right? It's within a specific context of Aida. But what's great, I think, about pop scores for musical theater is that you can also take those songs out and they can resonate on their own separately from that from that particular story. Um, I love this score. It's one of my all-time favorites. Seriously, top 10. It is so compelling and it's so accessible to me and I know to our audiences, even if they don't know the score. Um, For example, Written in the Stars, which is one of Elton John's songs that was famous before, you know, Aida is in the score. And so as you're listening to it and it comes to that scene, you're like, oh, I know this, right? I know this separately. Now that I see it in this context of this story, it has so much more power to it in such, I think, a a very, very unique way that maybe 
pop music that isn't in other realms maybe doesn't have that kind of audience or that kind of connection around it. But I absolutely love the score. If you can't tell, I've said I love the score like four times. <laughs> I think several of the songs went on to be hits on Billboard charts too, so mm-hmm. it definitely has that crossover. So let, let's go back and talk about Simone a little bit. Okay. Um, <laughs> she is truly incomparable. As you say, right. I expect any day to see her name above Broadway on some major stage. Um, yeah. She has a voice that can soar into sopranos, slide into musical theatre. And also she can be a kind of a smooth, sultry jazz soul singer in a jazz Mm -hmm. bar. Do we get a bit of everything from Simone in this role? Where is her voice? Where are you taking her voice? Well, our music director, Christine Nichols, is so good with coaching singers. And Christine is just has such an ease about her. And so what's great is that when she collaborates with singers, when she works with the ensemble, you know, she's got this great ear and she was a great musician in her own right. But she has a, a way of really letting them bring who they are to the part. And when you have someone like Simone, specifically, since we're chatting about her, that really gives her freedom, right, to to really let her voice resonate in a way that maybe it wouldn't if there was a different kind of context than what we create here at Mizzou Theater. So there's definitely some really strong gospel moments, which is also part of Simone's aesthetic. Definitely musical theater. You hear some of that soprano lilt, right? And Mm -hmm. some of the more tender, intimate moments when she's doing some of the love duets. Um, I wouldn't say jazz necessarily, but the smoothness that you're talking about is definitely there, especially... The vocal range of Aida is like astronomical. And so there's some moments where the vocals go very low and you hear this like really warm, throaty kind of tone that I feel like Simone brings such an, a special take on. I remember in Ragtime in, in 20, when was that? 2019? Yes, 2019. It seems like five years. It's not been that long. There was a moment in one of her duets with Marcus Ruff where she went to this really low place. And last night, actually, when I was listening to her sing one of the songs in Aida, she went to that place again. And so you definitely are going to get to feel and experience that full vocal range and the full emotional range, too. She is really bringing her acting chops to the, as always, but this role is just so big. I mean, she doesn't leave the stage that often. And so um, so the endurance, too, and being able to sustain that. I've seen her, her really work up to that and really work on focusing that on that, and it's amazing. Well, talking of the stage, too, I don't want you to go before we talk a little bit about the set, because I know your scenic designer, Mimi Hedges, has a brilliantly creative mind. I am always excited when I walk into one of the shows to see what she has created on stage. So tell us a little bit about the set. Give us a, a sneak. Sure. Well, just so you know, it's Dr. Hedges now. Oh, Good job. Congratulations, Dr. Mimi Hedges. Yes. She and her team, um, you know, we've got Vincent Williams on lighting, lighting designer. And one of the things I really like about the set design, it's visually different than anything I've seen on the Reinsberger stage. Mimi and Scott worked very collaboratively on trying to create the world of Aida. And it goes between a couple of time periods. And so we really get both of those time periods very clearly. You're going to be blown away. I don't want to give anything away because I, I want you to come in and be surprised. <laughs> but the scale of it, 
even the way the floor is painted, like I'm always amazed every time I walk in the shop, there's something new. But also with the visuals, we've got Jen Van Buskirk, who is new to us. We uh, hired her as our costume designer this summer, and she and her team are doing excellent work. There are just some stunning, stunning costumes in this. And there's just so many people, right? I just don't want to forget anyone. Actually, fun little tidbit, we've hired Keith Tyrone Williams, who is our choreographer. And in 2006, when I did Aida, he was also in the cast. So we got to work together at the Muni, and now he is here working with our students. And he's a Broadway actor. Uh, he's director, choreographer, teacher. He's He's been amazing. Um, he and then our associate choreographer, who is local, Brandon Riley, who's also in the show, so he's been doing double duty, and our fight captain, so triple duty. Dr. Les Gray is our dramaturg, and so they have been working on the research and working on making sure that the cast feels supported with historical data and having some of those challenging conversations, because there are enslaved folks in this. You know, there are scenes where folks are enslaved and captured. And, you know, when we have a cast of mostly black and brown people, it's really important to us that they feel safe, even if they're embodying those challenging characters and that history. And so there have been a a lot of really good conversations about that and how to approach it. And, you know, because the world, yes, Egypt, ancient Egypt existed, but this is actually a, a fantastical sort of world we're creating. And so how do the actors bring what they do to that you know how does everyone get on board with that and and still feel again safe and informed and able to breathe life into those moments safely is really important well i know it will be spectacular elton john and tim rice's aida directed by scott coons opens at the university of missouri's rheinsberger theater tonight and runs for two weekends tonight through sunday and then next wednesday the 29th through sunday the 3rd of july the two sunday performances are both matinees and start at 2 p.m you can find out more at theater.missouri.edu and dr joy powell thank you for all you do to encourage and amplify young artistic talent and also for making time to chat to me today. Thank you, as always. I'm so glad to be here. When maestro Kirk Trevor stepped down as conductor and music director for the Missouri Symphony Orchestra after last year's hot summer night season, he left behind a 20-year legacy and a question. Who would take over that legacy and lead the orchestra forward into its next era? The orchestra started a national search and decided to use their Hot Summer Nights 2022 program as an opportunity to invite each of the final four music director candidates to Columbia to curate and conduct part of the season. Hot Summer Nights 2022 kicked off last week with the first concert conducted by now conductor emeritus Kirk Trevor and this past weekend's Juneteenth celebration conducted by the University of Missouri's Dr. Brandon Boyd. And this week, the first of the music director candidates, American-born Taiwanese conductor, harpsichordist and pianist Wilbur Lin arrived in Columbia to curate and conduct two concerts, Laments, Romance and Dreams, which took place last night at the Missouri Theatre, and coming up this Saturday, Show Me America, a free concert at Rockbridge High School's main auditorium with music by Duke Ellington, 
John Williams and Columbia's own Blind Boone. And it is an honour to welcome Dr. Lynn and the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Executive Director, Trent Rash, to the show. Gentlemen, I know it is a crazy busy week, so thank you for making time to chat. And Wilbur, welcome to Columbia. Thank you, thank you. Hi, Diana. Always glad to talk. I love that this is such a public search and that we all get to meet the four conductor candidates over the next few weeks. I have no sense of whether this is the way that many orchestras select their conductors. So, Wilbur, is this the first time you've had such a public job interview? This is actually my third public director search that I've been part of. And uh, there are different, you know, our different orchestras do it differently, but I think it's very important for the orchestra to get to know the conductor, for the conductor to get to know the community. Because in the end, you know, the conductor is not just one of the musicians. The conductor, in a way, is the face of the orchestra. It's also, you know, the conductor is he or she is the person to represent this group in the community. So it's really great for the audience to get to know who's actually interviewing. And it's also for great for me and my colleagues here to know who we are working with and can I reach out to this community. Great. It's great for us too. Trent, you have four conductors curating and conducting concerts. Wilbur is up first, then Michelle Di Rousseau, who local audiences may have seen conducting Symphony of Toys last year, then Chelsea Gallo, and finally, and most locally, Darwin Aquino, who, though born in the Dominican Republic, now lives in St. Louis. How did you decide the order of who performed when? Oh, actually, that was really just up to their schedules. These are all busy and talented and individuals. And so it kind of is like a big puzzle. You put together piece by piece. And so, in fact, we had a different order at one point and Wilbur was really lovely to switch. It, it, It all depends on when they can make it work in their schedule. All four of the conductors are rising stars. You have Wilbur, who is known for his creative programming and inviting stage presence. Michelle, who is a graceful yet powerful force on the podium. Chelsea, who leads orchestras with grace and fiery command. And Darwin, who is both a composer and a conductor and known for his moving, absorbing and robust performances. I love conductor adjectives. How will you choose, Trent? What are your criteria? Oh, my goodness. Well, there's many factors, you know, and there's different groups of people looking in different ways. Obviously, the orchestra is looking for, is this a conductor I can follow that has a good rehearsal schedule, is organized in terms of the administrative staff? Is this somebody that we can work with, that it works well with the public, that is uh, finding a way to connect to this community, even the audience? Is this somebody who is energetic, who who is passionate on stage, who, who is likable? You know, there are kind of factors depending on who you are in the search process. You see what I did there, Wilbur? I got some tips for you. What, you know what Trent's looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so, Wilbur, you are ridiculously accomplished. You play the piano and harpsichord. You started your musical education at five. You started conducting in high school, started your own chamber orchestra while still an undergraduate or possibly still in high school, an orchestra which is now a full-on professional chamber orchestra. You've conducted all over the world. You are a Rhodes Scholar and got your master's from my neck of the woods, the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. Manchester, England. So why would you want to come and live in the middle of Missouri? (laughs) Yeah, well, first, I just want to correct the record. I am a harpsichordist. I'm not really an accomplished harpsichordist. I'm a better pianist and even better yet, I'm a better conductor. So hopefully (laughs) that's the right order of my resume. Yes. So this orchestra, actually, believe it or not, I actually worked with them five years ago when I was just a doctoral student. I was here as a master class attendant. I was in uh, Maestro Kirk Trevor's class. And back then, I realized this is an orchestra with a lot of energy. This festival 
has a very clear vision on what they wanted to do. And this is just a great, uh, great city to be in. And at my stage of my career, well, first of all, any good job opening is a great job opening. But this place particularly draw me into is because of the culture, because of you have a great university here, because of the resource you have. And just this is an orchestra punching above its weight. This is a medium-sized orchestra having 12 performances a year. This is such a great setup. And for a young conductor like me, this is the perfect place for my next step. It is a great city. We all love living here because it's such an artsy city. Yeah. Talk to me about your move into conducting. As a musician, you are following the artistic direction of both the composer and the person with the baton. But as a conductor, you are shaping the audience's emotional experience of the music. So tell me about your first time conducting. What really hooked you? So I was a pianist when I was in high school. That was my only instrument. I started learning percussion later on. But I wanted to be in a big ensemble. You know, as a percussionist, as a pianist, sometimes I get to play in some of the later, you know, late romantic pieces, but I never get to, say, perform in a Haydn symphony. And that was when I realized that, hey, I can actually be a conductor if I want to be in a symphony that doesn't require a pianist. And I was very lucky that in my high school, I get to conduct our school band and get to, you know, take over from my teacher when she was away. And that was my first taste in conducting. I just wanted to, after that first taste, I decided this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Do you remember what the first piece of music you conducted was? (laughs) Uh, I do not remember. I wish I remember. (laughs) Trent, taking off your executive director hat for a minute and switching it out for your sparkling singer and performer's satin jacket that every time I see you in it, I covet. What makes a good conductor when you are the one on stage with them? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think for me, and of course, my experience as a singer is different than an orchestra musician, is somebody who can command the stage, but also has a collaborative spirit. You know, I think a lot of performers appreciate, you know, being included as part of the process. And so I think somebody who is generous in allowing that collaboration to occur, that we're all making music together is really important. What is the hardest part for you, Wilbur, as the conductor when you have such a diverse group of people, all, all professionals, all great at their job, and then you've got a singer and you've got to keep everybody together? I mean, what is the biggest challenge that as an audience member, we just don't really know about? Sure. I think the biggest challenge is, you know, in a very short amount of time, really listen, really figure out what where everyone's at, what kind of musicality they're bringing, and finding a way to coordinate that. So in my mind, you know, it is not my art. My art is my curation of my music. And the real test is, can I, in the first 10 minutes of rehearsal, figure out where everyone's at, what they're bringing to the table, and then coordinate that into a concert you hear. Wilbur, this is going to sound a little nerdy on my part, so forgive me, but I did take a peek at your doctoral thesis. And apologies if I butcher anything here, but it seems to be, it's a, it explores how modern orchestras can both present works that are historically true to the original composer's intent, in the case of your thesis, that was Bach and his cantatas, but at the same time, recognize some of the limitations that the composer himself might have been working with and think about how to present that composer's work, how to interpret it in a way that honors what was happening in the past in their musical world, their society and within the church, but also presented in a way that modern audiences will appreciate. Is that kind of it in a nutshell? Yes, yes. So uh, one of my guiding principles, both in you know what I did when I was working on my doctoral uh, thesis and and what I do now as a conductor is that I firmly believe 
music is what we do now. Our audience, our community is who we are serving. There used to be a thought that we are serving the quote-unquote art itself. There is uh, a thought that we're serving the composer, which is all true and great. But in the end, we are serving our community through art. That is what I think is what we need to do. So during the quest of we want to be as true to the composer as possible, we also want to put ourselves into their own world. What what were the choices you are making? And how much of that is because they want to serve their community? How much of that is because of their limitation? And that I really hope that we can find a way to be true to their true intent, if you will, that we can really use what they are, even with their limitations, to serve our audience, if that makes sense. What made you so fascinated with Bach's cantatas over anyone else's canon or any specific body of work within another person's canon. So the title of my doctoral thesis is Performing Bach Cantatas with uh, Modern Orchestras. And the reason why I chose that is because this is a genre that is so much done, uh, often done by period ensembles, by historical ensembles, but not often done by modern orchestras. And it's not so that I really believe that we should perform Bach Cantatas with modern orchestras, but that this is more of a kind of thought exercise. What can we do and what are the limitations that we need to acknowledge as we perform these historical pieces and how we can apply the same idea when we uh, perform anything from Monteverdi to, uh, you know, Stockhausen. So I didn't read every 126 pages of your thesis, <laughs> um, but every time I dipped into it, I just would choose a random page and think, oh, let's see what he's talking about here. It was just fascinating all the way through, like how it was common in 18th century Germany before conductors that they had silent time beaters who took over from the earlier loud time beaters who just stomped <laughs> the musician's pit with a stick, which is hilarious that at some point somebody said, you know what, it'd be better if you were just quiet and just waved your your paper roll in the air. So tell me about early conducting and a little pricey of its history between loud time beaters and silent time beaters. I cannot really imagine how people conducted with the loud stick stomping on the ground. I mean, of course, famously, this uh, French composer, conductor Lully, was one of the you know first conductor we know was conducting with, with a loud baton, and that's how people followed. But I think music has gotten a lot more delicate and a, a lot more professional uh, during the past 300 years that, you know, our hearing and with the, the expectations of quality just continue to go higher and higher. And I think it's a wonderful thing that our job has grown into so many different separate professions. Because as you know, probably 100 years ago, Trent's job and my job was the same job. It was the same leader doing the same thing. And 200 years ago, the concertmaster's job and the conductor's job were the same job. And it's so great that we, we have this division of labor. We can all work on our, our skills and work on our leadership collaboratively. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I think it's fascinating, too, just the idea that orchestras didn't always exist. You know, we are so used to, we look at our modern world and we think, well, it was always this way. But orchestras didn't really exist when exactly. Bach was first starting out. And the instruments that are in contemporary orchestras didn't look the same or sound the same. So like you were saying in the thesis, this idea of interpreting, you aren't going to 
to ever really truly play the same performance. But what was his intention with that performance? I think is is just fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. And one good example would be we hear these Bach cantatas sometimes played by ten musicians, sometimes played by twenty musicians. We think, hey, that's a chamber concert. But we have to understand that people are used to concerts performed by eight musicians. When they hear 20 musicians on stage, that might as well be Mahler's Symphony Number no. 2 for them. So these are the things that we want to think about and talk about and find out how we can create a comparable experience for our audiences today. Well, your thesis was a rabbit hole that I haven't quite finished diving into. I'm going to go back and finish reading it because it's just fascinating stuff. <laughs> so final question for you, Wilbur. If you could conduct any piece of music in any world venue, what would we be listening to? Where in the world would it be? And what great classical composer or performer would you love to have sitting in the audience with us cheering you on? <laughs> I want to perform Puccini's La Boheme, Italy's La Scala, because that's one of my favorite opera houses that's one of my favorite operas however i would say normally what my favorite piece or the piece i want to conduct is always my next concert you know the times you spent in studying working so my favorite piece would probably john william boone blind boone your very own ragtime composer that we're going to perform on saturday trent Each of the concerts coming up has a completely different roster of featured composers, some classical, some more musical theatre. Is there a particular body of music that you are most excited about hearing? Oh my gosh, I think there's a a piece from every concert that I'm excited about hearing and excited about knowing that it's maybe never been performed by the orchestra or it hasn't been performed in a long time. I mean, I am excited about, you know, the Blind Boon, the symphonic uh, arrangements. I think that's going to be really exciting. I'm excited about the New World Symphony by Dvorak next week. Um, I, I mean, the list goes on and on. I think that there's some really exciting music that, you know, if people have been on the fence about whether this is for them, this is the season to come and check it out because there's some really wonderful, engaging works that they're going to hear. And it carries on next week. What are next week's concerts? Just so we're looking ahead a little bit for people. Yeah, next week uh, we have a concert on on Wednesday, June the 29th, and that is called The New World. And then the next Saturday, July the 2nd, is our annual Patriotic Pops concert. It's called Stars, Stripes, and Symphony. And both of those are conducted by Michelle DeRusso. That's correct. Perfect. The Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Summer of the Conductors 2022 season is underway and continues this Saturday, June the 25th, with a free performance at Rockbridge High School's main auditorium titled Show Me America, featuring the work of Duke Ellington, John Williams and Blind Boone, conducted by my guest this evening, Wilbur Lim. You can find out more about the season at themosey.org and Trent Rash, come back soon with another conductor and we'll be Lynn, I hope our paths cross again one way or another. Thanks to both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Diana. Next week, the man who has been at the helm of the Down Gallery at Sedalia's State Fair Community College for the past 14 years steps down and into retirement. Tom Pichet is only the second ever director of the Down, taking over back in 2008 from its first director and preeminent Missouri artist Doug Freed. I had only met Doug a year before he announced he was retiring, but I do remember thinking, wow, 
he's going to be a hard act to follow. 14 years later, I am now thinking the same thing about Tom Pichet. <laughs> Over his time at the Dam, he has grown its collection of art from around 1,200 works to well over 1,500 and introduced a host of new programming, including the gallery's Summer Nights at the Dam series, which brings music, poetry and performance into the gallery and the Dam Escape Programme for Children. Tom arrived in Missouri from upstate New York, so upstate in fact that he was less than 20 miles from Canada, and he leaves Missouri bound for Oklahoma to join his partner, and he says if retirement gets too dull, then maybe become an art critic. So with his departure from our midst being so eminent, I thought I should invite him back on the show for an arts exit interview. Tom, I find it hard to believe that it is over three years since you were last on Speaking of the arts, but I am delighted you agreed to do an exit interview. Well, thank you for having me. I know, you know, we lost those two years. It it feels like 2019 was <laughs> just yesterday. It does. Are you all packed at this point or are you staring at empty boxes wondering where to start? <laughs> no, you know, I'm a supreme procrastinator. So I, <laughs> I and I do one thing at a time. So I'll begin that soon, but (laughs) probably not before my last day on the job. So besides the swelteringly sticky summer heat, what was it about the Down Gallery in Missouri which lured you away from the snowy north? Because compared to your past two positions where you had, I believe, over 10,000 works in the Everson Gallery collection in Syracuse and then 2,300 works in the Gibson collection in Potsdam, Mm -hmm. you were moving here to take charge of a much smaller collection. Well, you know, the thing that attracted me initially was the contemporary ceramics collection here. And uh, the Everson is known for its international ceramics collection. It's probably one of the first museums in the country to have seriously collected ceramics starting in the the, uh, 1930s. So that was something I had in my background. And and the Dom had a, a very active contemporary ceramics program, really putting together a collection that included some of the top ceramic artists internationally working since the World War II period. So I thought, you know, that's great. They were getting national attention for that. I had seen them in uh, various journals and magazines. So I knew about the Dom before I knew about the job. And I was ready for a change. Well, especially when I was in Potsdam, you know, it uh, in January, it's not unusual to be minus 20 degrees, minus 30 degrees. They get those clipper winds coming right out of Canada. And, um, you know, a little of that goes a long way. (laughs) (laughs) Now, are you a ceramic artist yourself? No, I am not. I've taken ceramic classes, but um, I'm not really an artist at all. I have a minor in studio from my undergraduate years, but um, that was not where my passion lay. What was it about ceramic works of art that was so appealing to you? Part of it was the fact that I just was surrounded by them. I was at the the Everson for almost 20 years, and I just became familiar with them from having worked there for such a long time period. But they do appeal to me because, not so much now, but back um, in the 1980s and even into the 1990s, you know, ceramics was sort of the orphan child of the fine art world. And I think that has changed. But there was a little bit of a rebellious aspect to it, to treat something that many people consider to be a craft or a minor art and to really take it seriously and uh, to think 
about its history, think about the practitioners, what they contributed. Uh, I like that outsider aspect of it. The story of the Daum is one of those tales that fascinates because I think many people have a vision of the art acquisition world as nothing but urban elites spending millions of dollars at international auction houses and then squirreling their finds away in their vast (laughs) estates. But here was Dr. Harold Daum, a shy and humble radiologist who quietly started collecting work in the 1970s and then in 1999 decided to donate half a million dollars to his local state fair community college foundation plus two and a quarter million dollars towards the construction of a museum and then donated his own large personal art collection in the world of art and art museums how often does a dr down come along well museums do count on major donors and you know if you look across the country the broads um out in los angeles is a name that comes to mind right away but but every large museum has has a, a coterie of donors often their their names appear on galleries or facilities at different museums so that person exists you know nearby here we have the nerman museum again a museum named for a donor So it's not common, certainly, but a lot of museums depend on that kind of uh, patronage. Right. You expect it in big cities, but in a small rural Missouri town. Yes, well, there's that. (laughs) Dr. Dam died in 2015 at the age of 92. And in his will, he stipulated that the proceeds from the sale of his property be added to the Dam Art Acquisition Endowment, which allowed your acquisition fund to double your annual acquisition fund. And I'm curious what guidelines, if any, Dr. Dam gave for what works or type of works should be added to the collection he started or whether you had free reign. No, he did not have any um, restrictions on that gift. You know, we're guided by the permanent collection in our acquisitions program as well as in our exhibitions. So um, just following best practices in museums, we we look to the permanent collection to guide us. So we, we try to either fill in gaps or expand on key points, expand in areas where, where there may be something lacking to tell a more complete story. We've done that with the ceramics collection, certainly. And uh, we've done that with prints and, to a lesser extent, paintings. So... In a way, he guides us because he was the initial inspiration for the collection, and his key pieces continue to inform what we do. I know it's impossible to have a favorite. They're probably all your favorites. (laughs) (laughs) But what acquisitions have maybe most excited you over the past 14 years? I'm always happy when we add works to the permanent collection from artists who have exhibited with us. Mm. I think it's a great way to support contemporary living artists, and um, it helps to document our exhibition program. If we didn't believe in the artists, you know, we wouldn't be showing them. And so we feel pretty firmly that they are worthy of being in the permanent collection. So that's that always makes me happy. I, I It's great for the museum to be able to support artists in that both monetarily, but also their reputation for an artist to have work in a, a museum is certainly helps their, their bottom line. And there are many of those, and, um, and we do it fairly frequently. Other than that, I've been trying to most recently add to the ceramic collection. 
my background in ceramics, I think, was something that helped me get this position back in 2008. And so I've tried to remember that and to keep my contacts in the ceramic world fresh. So we've added a number of works. Uh, most recently, Peter Pincus, who is a, a young ceramic artist who has national prominence. We added someone who we wanted to have for a long time, and uh, recently deceased, uh, Takio Akamore. Uh, we recently added a, a work by him. Ralph Becerra is a hit more of a historical figure in the, the fetish finish category in California. So many of the ceramics are, are among my happiest buys. Something you said to a reporter from the Sedalia Democrat really resonated with me when I think back to my decision to leave the Columbia Art League a few years ago. You said that you had noticed a gravitational shift and that it was time <laughs> for someone else to start working with the collection and seeing the potential in it. And I felt very similarly about the Art League, that it was time for someone else to work with what we had and see the potential. And I wonder if you would expand on that gravitational shift and that idea of handing the collection to the next person. Yeah, it, it's gravitational. But I, I think what I was avoiding saying was it was generational, too. <laughs> you know, I'm about to turn um, 69 this year. And uh, in the past several years, um, you know, I grew up in the age of the generation gap. And so it was something I've always known about. But I always thought it was the older generation that where the gap was and now i'm i'm in that generation and i'm um and some things that that younger people do now doesn't make clear sense to me and i'm not going to say it's not good i'm just going to say that there's been a change and i'm not always there to grasp it and i think that 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 has certainly happened in the past few years um with the various social rights movements that have gained momentum, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, and things like that. There's a sort of a shift in the art world where, although there have always been socially engaged artists, I think that the trend now is even more so that artworks are not as involved with um, aesthetic matters as they are with the fundamental social matters. And I have a hard time Having come out of modernism and um, plumbed postmodernism and whatever ism we're <laughs> we're currently in, I don't know that I'm able to make the next leap. And so that's where I think it needs a younger person to to really start thinking about what the collection is now, um, to tease things out that speak to our contemporary moment, and to add works that speak more directly to our contemporary moment. I think it's very interesting to wonder what ism we are in now, because you have to have the benefit of hindsight to define an ism. And yeah. I often wonder in 20 years time what this ism will be. <laughs> ism. Well, it, it's certainly plural. There are lots of isms, you know, everything from these um, non-fungible tokens mm. to performance art, to sound art, and then to art that speaks directly to to social ills. And I'm all for it, but I don't I don't know that I'm the best person to bring it forward at this point. I'm you know, I'm very happy with paintings and ceramics, but you know, my first interest was um paintings. I gave a, a lecture a few years ago to a local art group and it had a very long title, but it was something like um 
why is it that as a curator of contemporary art, I always go to the medieval wing first in any museum? And I'm very happy with medieval art. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's an act of great generosity to decide that it is time for someone else to take over and step down from a job that you clearly have loved. And I'm sure that when you moved to Missouri from Syracuse and then Potsdam, there were some monumental shifts of perspective that you had to learn to work with between being on the eastern edge of the country and being in the middle. What do you think you've now become accustomed to in mid-Missouri that seemed particularly (laughs) challenging 14 years ago? You know, oddly enough, I think it's more challenging now than it was when I was first here. I think the newness of everything, and um, it took a while for me to fully digest. And as time has gone on, it's become, I think, more acute rather than my becoming used to it. Um, there's a certain straightforwardness in the Northeast that I um, miss, and I've never quite uh, learned to avoid. And it, it puts people off. This is not a an area where you know you do things very politely and um, maybe behind one's back, as opposed <laughs> and as opposed to sitting down and saying, "No, you know what's going on. This is uh, this is my understanding, and you're saying this," and and to work it out. Um, it's a different it's a different system here, um, and even the most conservative northeasterners are also not as conservative as a Midwesterner could be. So there have been a few challenges. <laughs> and now I'm going to Oklahoma. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that might be equally challenging in, in, in similar ways. But I like the idea of, of knowing a, a new region of the United States in a, in a very intimate way. And I'm happy for that experience. Um, I lived in Europe for a little while when I was in undergraduate school. And it's not dissimilar living in the Midwest. There are enough cultural and um, differences and um, attitudes and even language that it's really a foreign place <laughs> for someone who is born and bred in the Northeast and come from a, you know, a long line of city people. You know, we, my family on both sides, half from Boston, half from New York City, we're city folk and uh, that's in my DNA. So it's been interesting to see something else. So looking forward, art critic, is that sort of a revenge job for being at the receiving end of art critics for the past (laughs) few decades? No, not at all. Um, I was an art critic. And when I lived in Syracuse, I was the art critic for the Syracuse Herald American for three years in the 80s. And I've written for national magazines and, and periodicals over the years as well. It's something that I have had less time to do since I've been here. But it's something that is in my background, and I can see myself returning to it. Well, I did a quick Google search of Stillwater to see what you might occupy, how you might occupy any art yearnings you might have. And I see that Oklahoma State University has a museum. Plus there is the Modella Art Gallery and the Prairie Art Center. Or, and I know it's a stretch, but I'm wondering if the National Wrestling Hall of Fame and Museum might be able to use your curatorial expertise. (laughs) Have they reached out to you yet at all or you to them? Well, you know, I did a show with the museum at OSU maybe four or five years back. They commissioned me to do a show, and then I actually brought it to the Dom. So I do have 
contacts with the museum there. And then Stillwater, Oklahoma, is only an hour from both Tulsa and from Oklahoma City, and they both have very lively art scenes. So I think there'll be plenty to um, keep up with in my new adopted state. Well, I do hope that you will stay in touch with us here in mid-Missouri. Do you think you might come back or do you think that's it? You're going to pack up and leave and we won't see you again? No, I I have friends here who I will miss. And so I'm sure I'll be wanting to see them. And the Dom itself, I I want to keep up and see how things go forward, Um, what new shows they have, what new artists they're bringing in. That will be of interest to me for years to come. You know, I still dream about the Everson Museum. I have these bizarre our dreams where I'm back and things have changed and there are <laughs> new shows and I'm wandering through galleries I had never seen before. So I think um, art has been such a, a serious part of my life for so many years. I realized uh, earlier this year that it's been 50 years since I took my first art history class and I never look back. I've been single-mindedly pursuing art, a career in art, artists. It's really been been a passion of mine. So I don't see that going away. It just can't. I'm lining up already what magazines I'm subscribing to and, and <laughs> make sure I keep up. My guest has been Tom Pichet, Museum Director and Curator for the Dam Museum of Contemporary Art at Sedalia's State Fair Community College. He leaves the position next Thursday and heads off to a retired life in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Tom, it has been a delight having your curiosity, commitment and expertise at the helm of the Dam for the past 14 years. I know that you will be missed. Good luck in your future travels. Thank you so much and and thanks for speaking with me today. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, Artistic Director Joy Powell from the University of Missouri's Theatre Department, from the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, Executive Director Trent Rash and Visiting Conductor Wilbur Lynn, and in his last week as Director and Curator of Sedalia's Down Gallery of Contemporary Art, Tom Pichet. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!